Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Boy, there's a lot going on in the news. Uh, the post-shame politics of Andrew Cuomo. I addressed that in my newsletter today, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, following this playbook that we have seen before, uh, never apologize, refuse to resign, to push back, try to discredit the investigation. Uh, he's seen that work for other politicians. I'm not actually sure that it's going to work for Andrew Cuomo, considering that uh, even by the standards of our toxic politics, he is unusually obnoxious and disliked and apparently has no friends at all. I, mean, I, 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 I hate to use the term asymmetrical, but it is interesting to watch sort of the asymmetry between his scandals and, say, Donald Trump, because unlike Trump, uh, where Republicans rallied around and came up with all kinds of uh, excuses to look the other way or to defend him, uh, Democrats are bailing at an incredible rate right now uh, from Andrew Cuomo. Uh, it, it's from President Biden on down. Other Democratic governors have issued statements, I think probably more significant in terms of New York politics. By the way, how fucked up must New York politics be? I mean, how many governors have we had who have done this? I mean, New York is just not sending its best. I just, I just want to just throw this out there. But, um, you know, one of the most important developments seems to be that the unions, uh, which have backed him up until now, are breaking with him. It's hard for me to see what's left. And, you know, what makes the Andrew Cuomo story different than, say, the story of uh, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who survived the blackface incident, is not only that the charges are much more graphic and much more serious, but also there are mechanisms to hold Cuomo accountable. If he doesn't resign, um, I think he's going to be impeached by the legislature. Uh, The Democrats in the legislature are just sick of him. They, They want to be done with him. And uh, if he's, you know, so he's going to be impeached if he doesn't resign, even if he does resign, clearly he's going to be facing criminal investigations, possibly in uh, possible indictments. So I know that there's that playbook out there that if you just refuse to resign, if you pull a Donald Trump or a Ralph Northam or a Trent Lott or Bill Clinton, you know, things will turn around. I'm just not that uh, I'm not sure that's going to work for Andrew Cuomo whose career of being kind of a, a dick has just caught up with him in every possible respect. I just, I, so anyway, we, we could talk about that, but I wanted to do something different today. In fact, this is something that I've wanted to do for some time because I have been fascinated um, by the debates that we've been having over uh, policing, police reform, police violence, And I realized that one of the things that has shaped this debate most dramatically, believe it or not, bear with me here, is a Twitter thread by a conservative lawyer from Durham, North Carolina, named Greg Doucette, who started posting videos of police violence after the death of George Floyd. And it is now, the list is hundreds and hundreds long. And it, it has gone viral, it has become um, a clearinghouse for uh, these videos and, and, for, and for the debate over what's going on out there, um, how bad is it, and are we ever going to do anything about it? Um, and we are fortunate enough to be joined by Greg Doucette uh, on the podcast today. Greg, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. Thank you for having me. So first of all, let's just start with how you started doing this. You're a conservative lawyer. You've run for office as a Republican before, and yet you've kind of become 
the police brutality guy. How did this happen? <laughs> so I, in terms of my conservative background, I, I was one of those true blue types. I, you look at my bookshelf, you'll find stuff from Hazlitt and, you know, Free to Choose, Vision of the Anointed, and a whole bunch of books that typical conservatives used to read. You know, I, I helped mm -hmm. create the Teenage Republican Club at my high school. And you listen to the aphorism from Irving Kristol, that there were two types of conservatives, those who were anti-state and those who were anti-left. I took that anti-state piece to heart. Mm -hmm. And policing is part of the government. So if you are concerned about government overreach and that sort of thing, it makes sense to be concerned about the people enforcing the government's laws and whether or not they're following the Constitution. And so when I joined Facebook back in you know, God, 2005, ages ago now, uh, every now and then there would be stories during the George Bush administration of the FBI or state police or local police doing something wrong. I'd post it on Facebook and you'd always get certain stock responses from everybody. It's just a few bad apples. There's missing context. The person deserved it. And so that went on for years. I did the same stuff on Twitter. I'd share a story every now and again, and you'd get the same responses from the same people. So fast forward to 2020. And in May, after George Floyd's death, keep in mind, George Floyd was the third person to die in a fairly short period of time. You know, you had Ahmaud Arbery, you had Breonna Taylor, you had George Floyd. That was on the span of about a week and a half. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interest in police reform. There's a lot of people willing to protest. And what you saw, rather than typical police responses you get in a normal year, was a repeat of what happened in 2014 when the Black Lives Matter stuff first kicked off after Michael Brown's killing. Police were openly shooting at people. They were openly beating people down on camera. They didn't care. You know, you look at Minneapolis as an example. There's a video of a guy at a protest who's just dancing in the street. He's doing absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. He's not armed. He's not blocking traffic. He's not this. causing trouble. Yeah. He's dancing. And the police on the roof of the precinct shoot him. Now, it's a rubber bullet. Supposedly, those are less lethal. So it was explained as being no big deal. But the, the government should not be shooting at people who are dancing because they're protesting your conduct. And so I, I took my experience of posting stuff on Facebook and getting the it's just a few bad apples response and decided to compile 10 instances that happened mm -hmm. that last week in May. And I put them all together into a Facebook post. And then I did the same thing on Twitter. So th this old Twitter thread, it ended up becoming called the police brutality mega thread if folks want to look for it. The first 10 tweets were different things from around the country from that initial Facebook post. And rather than you know, respond in, in shame and kind of cut back, curtail what they were doing, you instead saw the opposite, where the, the government just went even further. You had a video where people were on their porch. Police were telling them to go inside. And when they didn't, they shot at them in their own mm -hmm. doorway, which is a flagrant Fourth Amendment violation. You had a case out in Salt Lake City where there was an elderly gentleman at a bus stop. SWAT gets out of a bus. First thing they do is push the old guy to the ground, even though he's not a protester. He's not doing anything. He's holding a cane and they knock him to the ground like it's no big deal. And so as more of these videos you know, were seen, I put them in the thread. And then at some point it went viral. And a whole bunch of people started DMing me, direct messaging me videos daily. You know, I got to the point by the end of summer last year, I could barely use Twitter because every time I would log in, there would be hundreds of new direct messages of instances all around the country, some of which hadn't even been reported by the media. It was just folks that were out at these protests themselves recording their own video. 
and they were sending them to me to make sure that I had seen them and they got put into the list. And so over time, there's a gentleman in California named Jason Miller, who was a university professor. He created a Google spreadsheet of the stuff that was in the thread, but taking the data about it together. So the location, the date, you know, the, the video file, having that as a separate searchable list to make sure that we didn't accidentally, you know, duplicate something. A lot of people were resharing videos from years past because, you know, suddenly this is a salient topic. So they want to get more attention on old stuff. And I, I had, I hate to say this, but because I had tweeted so many issues of police misconduct over the years, I usually was able to spot an old video because I'd seen it before. I'd seen the news story. Mm-hmm. I'd seen the coverage. So we kind of became this, this unofficial library of sorts of police misconduct throughout the summer of 2020. And, uh, you know, eventually I just, I hate to say I got sick of it, but it was just something where I could not keep up. It would be overwhelming. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, so you, 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 you mentioned this before the, 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 you know, a few bad apples thing. I mean, you know, still the videos are anecdotal. However, if you watch them over and over and over again, you do get the feeling that there's something, there's a pattern in practice. There's something, you know, deeply ingrained in the culture or is that is that unfair i mean i has your view of policing changed over the last year because i will tell you mine has uh going through your archives and and i, and I find it very disturbing i would say that's a tough question for me to answer because yeah. i'm very cynical you know it, i will i will deny this if you tell him but i would mm-hmm. describe myself as a jvl conservative this mm-hmm. notion that you know everything is Ooh. bad and can always get worse yeah um so that that has always colored my thinking i was always police skeptical and now doing my work as a lawyer separate from the twitter stuff uh, I, i've gotten far more cynical over time but to answer your question it really depends on how you want to look at it you know in any given year you'll have roughly 2,000 police officers arrested for some crime or another. And so an optimist will say, oh, that's great. We've got 800,000 police. Only having 2,000 arrested is no big deal. It's a small percentage. You have other folks that will say, well, you know, other than the politicians, how many criminals do we need to have being paid by the taxpayers? And so it's a problem when you have people who are given certain powers, you know, they're paid with your money, they're given training by the government, they're given military equipment now a lot of the times, and they're given certain protections where even after they violate your rights, they're not investigated because it's their colleagues doing the investigating. They're not prosecuted because it's their friends in the DA's office who have to make that decision. The few that are prosecuted are often acquitted by either a judge or a jury. And if you try to sue them civilly, the case gets thrown out because of qualified immunity. So there's no situation where you as an individual citizen can have your rights vindicated whenever the government violates them, as long as the government official doing it has a badge. So do you ever worry, though, about getting it wrong or misleading? The reason I'm asking this is because th- there have been some obviously you know, egregious cases of police brutality, obviously, George Floyd being you know, the, the most famous or at least one of the most, most famous. But there's also been you know, videos that, that, have, that have gone out, not necessarily by you. I'm not saying by you, but, but pictures have gone out of other incidents that, that in retrospect do not look as bad. So, for example, um, even though it continues to be part of the, the legend, Hands up, don't shoot did not actually happen in in Ferguson. By the way, you can feel free to push back on me uh, on, <laughs> on, on all of this. Um, the officer who was involved in a shooting of, uh, of a teenage girl wielding a knife, um, I, th- I think it was uh, uh, LeBron James. Yeah, my, uh, LeBron James, you know, posted his picture sort of you know, doxing this officer. Um, 
in retrospect, that looks like a more a justifiable shooting. So give me your, your, you know, how you balance this out because there's so much out there. How does the lay person separate this is really bad from this is possibly a misinterpretation or taken out of context? Uh, you know, I don't really have a good answer to that. So when you look at the, the protest last year, we went out of our way to try and make sure that stuff was vetted. You know, part of why it, it took so long and why there was a perpetual backlog I never caught up to was that when someone would send me stuff, I would try and verify the location, try and verify the date, try and make sure that, you know, what was allegedly, you know, what the description of the video was matched the video because there's sometimes where it just it doesn't match at all. Uh, and that's a, that's a slow and, and time consuming process. You know, there are, there are groups like Bellingcat forensic architecture that kind of took institutional horsepower to, to do that, to pick up what little we had started on Twitter and to make sure that that's accurate. Uh, but you know, that, that's always a possibility that something is going right. to be wrong. And then you also have situations where there's just, there's debates over whether what you're seeing is what you're actually seeing. You know, I'll, I'll use an example in your own backyard in Caledonia, Wisconsin, right. where last week, or a, I think it was like a week and a half ago, someone posted a video on Facebook and the caption on Facebook says it's the first time police have planted something in my car as a basis mm -hmm. to search it. And you see in the video, an officer throw a plastic bag in the back seat. I've seen and this, yeah. the, the driver says, what's that? Officer goes, what's what? He goes, you put that in here and the video cuts off. Mm -hmm. And so the response from the police department was to issue a statement saying we did nothing illegal. They released a tiny bit of video, just like the driver. You know, they said, we've got six hours of footage. We'll release it soon. It, it hasn't been released. And the footage they released was only a couple minutes. And what you see is they pull a passenger out of the back seat. They find the baggie in his pocket. The officer takes it back into the car and throws it in the car. And so a bunch of, you know, call it conservative Twitter said, oh, obviously this is all taken out of context. This is totally wrong. Everyone who was anti-cop initially should apologize and delete their account, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when you look at criminal defense lawyers who do this stuff professionally, know what we're looking at, it's absolutely what the guy on Facebook initially said it was. You know, if you listen to the body cam audio, the only thing they see in the car that could potentially provide a basis to search it was what the officer described as green flex in the footwell. Well, green flex in a footwell of a car isn't probable cause. It, it's a footwell. It's where grass and any other plant stuff you step on goes. You know, officers can't search you because they happen to see grass where the, the feet go in a car. But you take green flex and you take an empty plastic bag who the department says is used for holding drugs. And now you've got what would constitute probable cause in pretty much every jurisdiction in the country. So you have a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of lay people debating online as to whether or not what was in the initial video is true or not. And it basically was. But, you know, if you want to be pro cop, you can say that the you can be anti anti cop, I guess, would be the way of, of saying it. If we want to borrow the anti anti Trump aphorism, you know, you can say that this was all, you know, fake news and you're done with it. And that's basically what happened. Now, I note to this day, Caledonia Police Department still hasn't released the video. When they do, I suspect what we're going to find is that they went ahead and searched the vehicle using those green flecks and the baggie as probable cause. Uh, but that's just, you know, some stuff is openly misrepresented and you got to rely on people to catch it and call it out. Other stuff isn't really misrepresented at all, but both sides have a vested interest in trying to pretend like it is.
the the most obvious point to make here is is incredibly obvious, and it may even seem trivial, although I, I think it just drives everything, which is the fact that the video has changed everything. The smartphone has changed absolutely everything. We are seeing all of this in a way that we would never would have seen before. You know, to talk about a transformative moment um, in police community relations, but also I have to tell you what haunts me about all this is you see these videos, as you see what's going on, as you see the pattern and practice, to think what was happening before we had cameras. If you thought about that, I mean, we have so many body cams now. We have so many, uh, you know, every single human being basically is carrying a video camera now. So that's going to change behavior. And yet you're still revealing so much misconduct and brutality and, and cruelty. Uh, what was happening before we had cameras, Greg? I hate to depress no. you on a Monday morning, but no. I've got to push back a little bit. What was happening before is the same thing that's happening now. There has been a lot of academic research into whether or not body cams affect behavior. And the overwhelming conclusion from every study that has been done on it is that it makes absolutely no difference. Really? It, it, it does not change police conduct. It doesn't change offender conduct. It doesn't change the nature of the interaction, make it you know better or worse. It makes absolutely huh. no difference at all. And so one of the things I, I joke with people is I say, look, you know, one of the first rules of, of my podcast, we say police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded because it's huh. true. It's empirically true. And so you have a debate now in the justice reform community as to whether or not we should have body cams at all. Because the response is, well, if, you know, when body cams were first proposed, the idea was that this would actually impact police, that they would sure. be less inclined to do illegal stuff if they were going to potentially be caught. Now that you know they don't, is it really, does it make sense to spend so much money on body cams because they're expensive? A lot of cities already spend more than half of their municipal budgets on police. You're tacking on this extra line item for body cams, video storage, all that other stuff. And then on top of it, you see a lot of times where the cameras are used to basically create dossiers on people engaged in First Amendment protected speech, you know, protest. We saw this back in 2016 with a lot of Black Lives Matter activists. You know, you had DeRay McKesson, Brittany Packnett, Janetta Elsey. The, the government had created dossiers on these people and were using video from body cams to help, you know, keep them apprised of where they had appeared and what they were doing. And so you, on the other side of that, of course, you have people like me. I like body cams. I yeah. think that body cams have inherent value to make sure that at the very least you can, you can help figure out what's going on. So I'll so give you an example. I'm sorry. No, I, no, no, I was going to say. So as an example, down in Florida, uh, Zachary Wester was recently sentenced to 12 years in prison because he had planted drugs during traffic stops on at least 17 different occasions. The only reason that ever got discovered was because the reports that he had written didn't match what his body cam showed. So a lot of the bigger departments will have this sporadic auditing function. They'll have people in there that will compare the arrest report with the body cam footage. And the auditor noticed those discrepancies. Once those were found, they pulled more body cam footage, and then they discovered this guy had, in fact, been planning evidence. That you never, you never learn that without having a body cam. Right. And so the question is, is it worth all that expense? You know, I like to think so, but I understand that reasonable minds are going to differ on it. 
So do you have any insight into what's the psychology? Why wouldn't it make a difference? I mean, one would assume, you know, what is that old expression? You know, the conscience is that small voice telling you that somebody may be watching. And if you know there are cameras everywhere, then, you know, you're going to you're going to look over your shoulder. So so how does it work? Well, what is it? What is the psychology of a cop that doesn't change his behavior even knowing that it might be caught on camera. I'm going to be honest with you. I really don't know. I, I, I wish know I either. did. You know, it, it's something where part of it is the the nature of the people who are gravitated to that profession. You know, you have certain folks who legitimately want to protect and serve their community. And th that might even be the majority of it. I don't know. But any position where you're given power over others' lives is going to attract people who thrive off of having that power. Consequences be damned. You know, I'll use Governor Cuomo as a good example. That guy has been trashed for a long time. And he honestly, even Democrats knew it. The only reason he's facing any consequences now is because exactly. in New York, Democrats run everything. Whereas in Virginia, it's at least a nominally uh, purple state. So they're not going to get rid of Northam at the risk of Republicans coming back. That's not a risk in New York. But the same type of mentality that Important I'm point. entitled to have this power I will be protected if I exercise this power. And so you start bending the rules and getting away with it, bending them a little bit more and getting away with it. And you just decide to break them and get away with it. You know, it's fascinating to look at a lot of the officers who have been arrested. It's not their first offense. You know, it, it's not something they've done for the first time. They've been doing it for a while. You know, you look in particular, I'll use a, I hate using Chicago as an example for everything, but Chicago is an example. Ronaldo Guevara was a detective who basically fabricated a bunch of stuff over the span of years, sent dozens of men to prison for crimes they never committed. And it got so bad that the judicial system, a judge started doing mass exonerations because it was taking too long to individually go case by case in all of these cases where the guy had lied. And so it's just something where once you start doing it and you get away with it, the system protects you. The thin blue line is not going to rat you out. If they do, the DA is unlikely to prosecute. If they do, a jury is unlikely to convict. If you're sentenced, okay, it's not going to be that long, and you're probably just going to go get another job in another police department. The whole system is set up to protect this type of conduct. Well, and, and that's what I was kind of thinking when I was thinking, you know, what had happened before cameras because they got away with it. I'm, I'm trying to remember statistics that I've seen. Um, about the number of police officers who'd ever been convicted of uh, of murder or manslaughter before the advent of cameras. And for years and years and years, it was pretty much close to zero, right? I mean, yes. it wasn't, um, you know, in, in, in Minnesota, uh, that, that case, the Officer Chauvin case, wasn't he the first officer ever to be convicted of in, in, a, in a wrongful death case like that? I think so. Now, there's that other one where, and I can't remember the, the lady's name, Justine Damon, I think it was, yeah, where right. an she had been shot and killed. That officer was convicted as well. I can't remember if that was part of a plea or a trial or what. Um, but, but, but yeah, but it's exceptionally rare. On one thing. See, that's the thing is you have decades and decades and decades of racial tension or tension between police officers and you know, and, and, and the citizenry. And over and over again, you'd have shooting. And what they would say is, well, I feared for my life. Um, or um, he had a gun or he had a knife in his hand. And I guess you could wonder how many of those cases you know, just never came to light. That if, in fact, um, you did have the same level of brutality, and I guess my gut tells me it might have been worse <laughs> at one point. But, but knowing back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s that police officers could shoot people with absolute legal or close to absolute legal impunity, 
because nobody ever got charged. Nobody ever got convicted. Nobody ever went to prison because there were never any pictures. And yep. so that was a culture that must have existed for many, many years. And you wonder how many cases like George Floyd, how many other cases, you know, of kids shot down, um, you know, unarmed kids shot down, took place that, you know, that were, were quickly brushed under the rug that we never actually even heard about much. Yeah, it's definitely something that has impacted, you know, the, the culture and policing, but also the culture among the public. You know, police kill on average three point something people a day, you know, roughly 1100 a year. And most of those by the standard of the law are justified. Whether they're politically justified is, is up for debate. But the fact is, you know, you look at, for example, a lot of people who are mentally ill, if they're gesturing towards their pants and get shot, the, the law yeah. will say that's fine because they might have had a weapon. Whether they actually had a weapon or not doesn't matter. It's the fact they might have had a weapon. And so there is this culture in policing that you're better off shooting someone dead first so that way you can go home at night. And then if that happens, deal with the civil lawsuit later than it is to risk someone potentially having a weapon and, and going after you. So there's that piece of it. You also have the focus on policing itself. You know, a tremendous amount of resources are spent policing traffic, you know, pulling people over for speeding, license plate issues, you know, expired registration. Philando Castile is an example where he was pulled oh, over yeah. dozens of times, yeah. eventually shot dead yeah. for reaching for his license as the officer commanded. Well, the thing is that a lot of those, those aren't typically serious offenses in any meaningful way. You know, it, it's one thing if you're flying at a high rate of speed. It's one thing if you're driving drunk. But if you've got an expired license plate, it's fairly easy to just punch into a computer system. Hey, this guy's got an expired plate. I saw him without ever pulling him over. DMV can send them a notice saying, hey, you were driving on an expired tag. Fix it or we're going to send someone to your house at some point to, to have a discussion. What we do, though, we have those folks pulled over because the police want to do a fishing expedition. And, and departments will admit this. They will say, this is our number one way of, of contacting the public. Well, those are some of the most high danger scenarios because neither the officer nor the driver know the other person prior to that interaction. So every officer is going to assume the person they're going to talk to has a weapon. A lot of drivers are going to assume the officer coming up to them is, has the power to end their life. And it's just it, – it's something that we promote for no discernible reason because it doesn't appreciably impact public safety. Whereas you look at murders as an example, roughly 40% of all murders are never solved. Police aren't that good at solving homicides. You would think more training and money and personnel would be put into addressing that piece of it. If your national clearance rate – you know, we call the clearance rate as how many crimes are solved either by an arrest – or by what's called exceptional circumstances, meaning you know who did it, but for whatever reason, they haven't been arrested. They committed suicide or something like that. You know, if you have a situation where your clearance rate is only about 60% and that's in a good year, that's a sign you need to focus on those things that matter because every homicide matters. You know, you talk about the violent crime rate going up. Violent crime overall is not going up. It's the homicides that are going up and they're going up okay. by a lot. You know, that's the type of stuff that people need to focus on. And yet we're spending hours of manpower, training, resources, pulling people over for expired tags because we hope maybe they'll have weed and we can use that to get them into the court system. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk with uh, with Greg Desette about uh, police unions, the January 6th uh, insurrection and the, and the role of the police in all of that. And 
And especially, I really want to uh, get your views on qualified immunity. We'll be right back. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters, to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Hey, we're back with uh, Greg Doucette, who uh, runs this viral Twitter um, archive of police brutality. First of all, so where can people go to find this this uh, this archive that we've been talking about? So on my Twitter account, it's Greg underscore Doucette, D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. Uh, the pinned tweet is our current 2021 stuff. And then if you go down a, a tweet on that pinned tweet, you'll see the stuff from last year that we've got linked. You also have a podcast called Fiscum All. What, 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 <laughs> I, I, what is what is what is that? It's so I, I have to tell like you, it's an, it looks like an obscenity. I mean, I'm just you know, like you know, well, that, but, that was by design. Okay, okay, uh, no, no. So we started it back in 2017, and I, I will tell your audience, my undergraduate degree is in computer science. Mm -hmm. I was a technology nerd. I planned to work in the tech field. Uh, before deciding to go to law school. And FSCK stands for File System Consistency Check. It's a program that runs whenever your computer crashes to make sure that it can actually operate normally when you reboot it. And so when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to call the podcast, I wanted something that that adequately conveyed my views on the topic, but at the same time would not get me an automatic E rating from the, the iTunes, uh, Apple podcast app. I see, I see. Uh, so that was how we worked that in. Uh, but essentially it's, it's a podcast that we started some years ago that basically takes the same stuff that you see on my Twitter feed, you know, just kind of the, the weak stories of police misconduct and puts it into audio form. You know, we're on a bit of a hiatus because now that the court system has reopened, uh, life is a mess for a lot of lawyers trying to keep stuff going, but we're still there. So if folks want to check it out, the website is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L, fiscamall.com. Um, okay, so let's talk about um, the role of police unions and all of this. This is a, a longtime fascination that I, that I have had. The, the way, the, the role that police unions have had in protecting even the worst cops from accountability. Give me your, give me your take on that. They're terrible. I mean, they're absolutely terrible. Public sector unions in general are questionable, but the police unions by far are the worst offenders out of the bunch. If you look at some of the, the activist efforts uh, and, and they're going to kill me because I can't remember the website at the moment. But a lot of the Black Lives Matter folks started a website tracking police union contracts and what protections are baked into these contracts that are approved by the politicians. Uh, it's absurd. It's the type of stuff that you would never have. Even in a private sector union, you wouldn't have it. You damn sure wouldn't have it if you weren't in a union. And it, these are the types of things that politicians get away with because by approving the union contract, they're seen as, you know, helping police, the public loves police, it helps them get reelected. And then when it comes time to hold officers accountable, you know, you have, for example, cooling off periods where they can't even be approached by an officer for an interview until after a certain span of time has passed. Huh. They're given access to their reports and body cams before giving any statements to make sure that everything is consistent and they can potentially explain away anything that was done wrong. Uh, you know, that's the type of stuff you would never have. Now, you always have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself, but you don't have a right to review all the evidence the government has against you before you tell them what you what statement you decide to give. Um, you know, just the the 
pension payouts, the salaries, you know, in a lot of the bigger areas, California, Oregon, Washington, New York State, Illinois, it's not unusual for regular beat cops to make six figure salaries. You know, they'll make 110,000 a year plus a pension on top of it, plus the ability to work overtime. And, you know, that type of stuff comes about because of union protections a lot of times. You know, I remember reading about it also, particularly the Minneapolis Police uh, Union had had a very sort of interesting uh, checkered record uh, that, that, that really does explain, though, how you would have a culture that would create a Derek Chauvin, how you would get to all of that, that you had, you know, police union bosses who had, you know, had, you know, a lot of stuff in their jacket about bl- brutality and yet nothing ever happened to them. They, they were never they were never really held accountable for it. Yeah. Well, a lot of union bosses are also police who've who've done a lot of really bad stuff. I mean, there was one fairly recently, one of the threads that we keep a list of of is cops who commit sex crimes. And the first guy in the thread is a union boss who raped somebody. And because he was running the union, he was the one who was protected. So tell me about the the other protection the police officers have. And this is really, I think, goes to the heart of this debate we're having now about police reform is the concept known as qualified immunity. Another reason why it's so hard to hold police officers accountable for criminal activity. So so talk talk to me about uh, qualified immunity, what it is and what we ought to do about it. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit for your audience and provide some background. So first, let's start with the basics. You have this notion of what's called good faith immunity that we inherited from Great Britain. And it was a subjective test where if a government official had done something wrong and you sued them, whether they had violated rights or they had not done something they were required to do based on a statute, whatever it was, you would go through the litigation process, you would go through a trial, and the jury would decide – was this government official acting in good faith or not? If they were acting in good faith, the plaintiff loses. And if they were not enacting in good faith, then the jury would decide, you know, what kind of monetary award to give you. So there's that piece. Keep good faith immunity in your head in the background. After the Civil War, Congress enacted several what were called enforcement acts. And these were designed to address the Ku Klux Klan and the the terror they were inflicting on people, especially in the South. And so the third Klan Act, the third Enforcement Act, created a statute that we now know as Section 1983. It's the United States Code, Chapter 42, Section 1983. And what that says is that if anyone is acting under color of law, that's the magic language, and they violate your rights – You can sue them for monetary damages and for an injunction to stop them from doing it again. And the most obvious scenario in this case, of course, was local law enforcement, you know, murdering people of color. Uh, That was something that that act was designed to address. Now, in the federal context, we don't use that statute. We make what is called a Bivens claim, which is based on a Supreme Court case. I'm not going to go into the details, but the basics are the same. If any government official violates your rights, Congress intended that you should be able to sue them in civil court because a lot of times you can't stop the rights violation on the front end. You can only be compensated for it on the back end. So in the 1960s was kind of the origins of this immunity discussion where the court said, okay, we got to use this good faith analysis for state officials who are violating rights. Well, in 1982, a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald, the Rehnquist court said, you know what? scratch that. We have too many lawsuits that are going forward, wasting the government's time and money defending them, even though they're not merit worthy. So instead of good faith immunity, that concept is abolished. It's gone. We're judicially going to create on our own 
this notion of qualified immunity for all cases dealing a with this Section 1983 claim. A judicial, that's a judicial standard. It is not written into statute. Correct. It is, it is okay. an activist court being among okay. the most activist okay. courts huh. ever. Huh. And okay. so the way qualified immunity is spelled out in Harlow versus Fitzgerald is that an officer can only be held liable if they violated your rights and that right was, and putting in air quotes here, clearly established at the time of the violation. So that's how we started in 1982. Qualified immunity comes into effect, and this applies to all 1983 claims, all Bivens claims. Well, you fast forward a few years, and in a different case in 2005 called Pearson v. Callanan, the Supreme Court said, you know what? This two-prong analysis where you got to consider both prongs in order, was there a constitutional violation, was the infringed right clearly established, that takes too much paperwork. We're going to instead say you can do either analysis first if you're a court. You can decide whether it's clearly established first. You can decide if there was a right violated first. It's totally up to you. And so lawyers have this joke. We call it the law of less paperwork where judges <laughs> will, will make the decision that is easiest for them. What you saw happen – is courts would stop analyzing at all whether there was a constitutional right violated, and they would immediately jump to whether or not the alleged right was clearly established. And so the way that works out in practice is it rewards innovation in lawbreaking. So if you look at patents as protecting innovation for people who create things, qualified immunity protects innovation in having your vi rights violated. You know, okay. I'll, I'll give you an example. So yeah. there was a case a few years ago in California where a SWAT team raided the wrong house, completely blew up this guy's house. Now, that's a pretty obvious Fourth Amendment violation. That they sounds got, problematic. Yes. Right. You mm -hmm. know, got the wrong guy and mm -hmm. destroyed his property. Well, when he sued, what the Ninth Circuit said was, yeah, you know, your rights were violated, but we've never had a SWAT team blow up a wrong person's house before in a case that was in this particular circuit. So we can't say that it was actually clearly established that you had a right not to have your house blown up. And so you get zero dollars. So if and you so, do something that nobody's ever done before, you're pretty much scot-free. Correct. And not oh. only that, but it's if you've done something that's never been done before and litigated to a point where a court has weighed in on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if SWAT blows up a bunch of houses, everyone is protected until at some point a court says, by the way, SWAT teams can't blow up the wrong house. It's now clearly established you have that particular right. Uh, so another example I tend to use is that this case of Jessup versus Fresno, oh, where a, a police department was executing a search warrant and the police stole roughly $151,000. Some of it was cash. A lot of it was rare coins. This, this and, also seems problematic. Correct. And what the Supreme Court said was, OK, theft is illegal. We know that you have a right not to have your property stolen, but we've never had a case where your property was stolen while executing a search warrant. So we're going to decide that that was not clearly established and you get zero dollars. The case gets oh, thrown out. Seriously. And so it, it mean, ends up applying. Seriously. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is such a it is such a bizarre doctrine <laughs> and it gets progressively worse over time because as more and more cases get to the circuit courts of appeal, get to the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court has done has been to routinely deny reviewing cases that were thrown out. And the few times they do review them. They tend to be cases where they say, you know what, 
the circuit court said this was in fact clearly established. We think they're wrong because the circuit court was too general. They need to be even more specific. <laughs> so if you can't find a prior case with precedent from a court that mirrors your facts almost exactly, you have absolutely no remedy in the courts. You, you cannot sue and get compensation for any of it. And what that does is it creates a moral hazard scenario. You know, if you don't have any consequences for your bad decisions, you make more bad decisions. And so you see more and more police doing more and more outrageous things, and they just happen to get away with it. There's absolutely no punishment of any kind, criminal or civil. Can Congress fix this? Can Congress pass legislation that would eliminate qualified immunity? And do you think they will? Uh, first question is yes, Congress can fix it. Absolutely. They are absolutely not going to do that. You know, the, the part of the discussion about this police reform package that they've been negotiating for, for months now, I never thought it was going to pass. And the issue about qualified immunity is part of the reason why, you know, because anytime you decide, okay, in fact, we're going to do what Congress intended back in the 1800s and allow people to sue police. That just becomes a tailor-made attack ad that you're soft on crime and Republicans aren't going to allow that to happen. Um, so what a lot of municipalities have done in states, particularly in Colorado, you see it in New York City, is they've created state and local versions of 1983 where qualified immunity is banned as a defense. So you'll see news reports saying, you know, Colorado eliminated qualified immunity. They didn't. It still exists. But they created this separate state process where you can sue and qualified immunity never comes in because you're not dealing with Section 1983. You're not dealing with a Bivens claim. Uh, so that's kind of a, a workaround. But it's something where to fix it at the federal level, which is where the vast majority of these cases are, are coming in, Congress has got to do something. And I just don't think the political will is there to do it. No, I think you're probably right about that. Okay, let's just switch it up a little bit. I want to sort of you know turn this around. I am really struck by um, you know how vocal the you know Blue Lives Matter, we back the blue uh, movement was last year. Um, I live in Wisconsin. Uh, you can drive around the area where I live, and there's all kinds of signs. We back law enforcement. We back uh, police. You know, I'm I'm struck by the silence of those folks when it comes to the police officers who were involved in the January sixth insurrection. Oh, yeah. um, I believe we have now had five uh, police officers uh, die in the wake of that uh, through suicide. I mean, this is kind of the flip side that you know we've, we've spent most of the time here talking about police brutality. Um, but there's also the brutality the police face. And um, I, I, I think that people, you know, maybe many of our listeners understand how extraordinary what happened on January 6th was for these officers who have no training to deal with medieval style combat over a period of hours. Just the savagery of the attacks on them uh, by by citizens, um, you know, the threat they faced, uh, you know, people saying, you know, he, you know, we got one, uh, you know, let's kill him with his own gun, all, all of that. Mm -hmm. Are you struck? Because I'm sure you hear from people who say, Greg, you're anti-cop, you know, you are undermining law enforcement. But where, where is that? Where are those folks in defending the police officers who were brutalized on January 6th? I, have you noticed the sort of the cognitive the silence? conspicuous silence. I mean, where are the police unions? Where's the, where are the police unions coming to the podium and saying, we just think it is outrageous that, you know, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are mocking and making fun of these police officers. If Donald Trump really did call them pussies, this is outrageous. We can't have this. I don't hear any of that. Do you? 
Well, it's because the, the January 6th officers were policing the wrong people. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And let, let me say on the front end, the officers who were involved on January 6th did a phenomenal job, an absolutely phenomenal job. It is a fucking miracle that only mm-hmm. one person was killed by law enforcement right. it, it, when that happened. You know, that is that is tremendous. You know, that particular I'm blanking on his name, but the gentleman that provoked the the people who were chasing him to lead them away from yeah. the Senate chambers, that level of situational awareness and a commitment not to try and just blow people away, which tends to be the standard response at the state level. You know, it was just incredibly impressive. You know, the New York Times compiled a bunch of videos tracking what was happening from different areas. And you see the officers trying to hold the line when they realize they can't. They then, you know, uh, fall back to certain choke points and they just go out of their way to not try and summarily execute people. You know, it is it is what we should expect from all police everywhere across the country. It was just a stellar job. And I realize that that means I'm never going to get elected to office on either side Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's just not going to happen. But But I'm very impressed with what they did. And I think they deserve all the accolades that they can get. The reason why the unions are staying quiet about it is because the unions support Republicans now. That's something that by having Donald Trump in office, they basically sold themselves out. And, you know, there's a there's a decades old thing. We used to joke that the love of police brutality was strongly bipartisan because Republicans want a police to keep minorities in their place. The Democrats want a police to keep the homeless in their place. And so both sides had a benefit to promoting this type of lawlessness in police culture. Well, after Donald Trump, the unions just decided to go full Republican. It's just something where, you know, don't be too nice when you're putting them in the the patrol car. They eat that sort of thing up. So to have officers who are trying to defend the country from pro-Trump rioters, insurrectionists, they're not going to defend them at all. They're going to assume that these are these are bad cops. You know, these are the ones that they're talking about. We don't defend all cops. We only defend the good ones. Well, they're going to say the ones on one six were not the good ones because they were policing the wrong people. So you're, you're, you're sort of suggesting this, but I, and again, this is purely speculative. Would they have shown, would police have shown the same level of restraint had it been Black Lives Matter, if it had been 10,000 Black Lives Matter protesters storming the Capitol? Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. I don't know. We, we don't know. Right. I'm, and the reason why I say that is twofold. One, uh, black people have been killed enough by police to know they're not going to try and raid Congress. That's just not going to happen because they would expect that it would be a bloodbath. But my counterpoint is a lot of the federal law enforcement, particularly in D.C., tends to be the best of the best from around the country mm-hmm. because there are so few jobs and there's such high competition to get them. That if you look at the Capitol Police, the the personal protective detail, the people in Secret Service, you know, I I do federal criminal stuff, state criminal stuff. I've had cases where Secret Service was on the other side and they're providing the, the information and the details trying to prosecute my clients. They're very good at what they do. And so I would expect that same level of restraint regardless. But at the same time, when you look at what you see pretty much daily at the state and local level, it, it wouldn't be surprising if there was a bloodbath, but I just don't think I have better faith in the federal police in that small area of, of space in the Capitol that they wouldn't do that. Greg Doucette, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was uh, every bit as riveting as I was hoping it was going to be. I appreciate it being here. Sign up for Bulwark Plus, unsolicited plug. I've been a <laughs> member for a while. I love everything y'all do. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.